Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ball and Breakfast podcast uh, with Wayne Pua and Patrick Miller. Um, here to kind of run through what's happened with the World Series. Uh, just, re, you know, concluded last night. Uh, we'll talk about NFL trades, uh, you know, that kind of took place last week, building into, you know, week nine now. Um, you might hear my son in the background crying. Uh, but anyways, uh, <laughs> NBA as well. Uh we're going to cover uh, the Nets, especially just looking at what's happened with, you know, Steve Nash being fired, uh, Ime Udoka, you know, potentially, you know, joining them as head coach in the near future and uh, everything that's been going on with Kyrie Irving, uh, one of our favorite people to talk about on this podcast for, for many different reasons. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll recap all uh, across the landscape of sports. Um, if you're, you know, listening to us right now on YouTube, please, uh, you know, leave us a subscribe, uh, a comment, a like, anything that, you know, helps to contribute to the show and, you know, just driving our own awareness. Uh, if you're on Instagram, you know, please follow along, uh, you know, engage with us in any way that you see fit. Um, and if you're on audio, uh, any reviews on Apple, Spotify, Google, Anchor, et cetera, always helpful. Uh, with that, let's kick off the MLB, the World Series. Um Wayne and I had a, a bet on the board between the Astros and the Phillies. Uh, you know, Wayne went with the Phillies, who were obviously, you know, red hot, moving their way through the playoffs. Um, you know, Astros alike were undefeated until getting to the World Series, just, you know, maybe had less of a narrative because of, you know, their past and just their ability to get into the, you know, mix year after year, you know, in the recent years. But uh, we put a bet on the board. Uh, it was for a shot of Malort. Uh, I'm going to kick it over to Wayne to to tell folks about Malort uh, right before he takes his shot. But like, give us a rundown. What is this for those folks that aren't in Chicago? Those folks maybe out in the D.C. area, maybe New York, California. Let's hear it. Yeah, well, I first off, it's got awful. But this is Malort um, from was it the uh, the Carl Jepson Company in Chicago? I think it got acquired by CH Distillery, from, which is in the Chicago's uh, Pilsen neighborhood. Uh, but I, I've chatted with locals as well as people from abroad or have lived in Chicago. And I think the consensus, overwhelming consensus is that it tastes God awful, but at the same time, like, and nobody likes it, but at the same time, for whatever reason, it is something that is, I guess, baked into Chicago pop culture as I don't know, some sort of like blue collar type of liquor that everybody hates, but at the same time, everybody loves something kind of like, you know, the, the Cubs, I guess. So, um, but you know, uh, definitely appreciate it. And, you know, I'm definitely going to own up to it. Uh, I got excited when Kyle Schwarber hit that homer, but then I felt so distraught again when uh, Jordan Alvarez hit hit a three-run homer over there. So similar to what he did um, against the uh, the Seattle Mariners and, and winning that series there to just kick off that series. So um, I guess with all that, um, and I actually had one of my Vietnamese <laughs> friends explain this to me is that it's actually, I guess, popular amongst the Vietnamese community in Chicago just because uh, it kind of reminds them of bitter melon, which I can definitely see since it's bitter as hell. So uh, so with all that, I guess, uh, cheers <laughs> to uh, the Astros here. Uh, and man, hope, man, hopefully uh, better things to come for the Phillies here. So yeah. cheers, Wayne. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so <laughs> I already know what you're going through, uh, having, having Malort, uh, in, in past years myself. I mean, I feel like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, if you ever had like lead or, you know, I don't know if you've cut, you know, <laughs> cut open your mouth and you're like, Hey, I have some blood kind of swishing around your mouth or something, but 
I mean, also could be bile, you know, something else like that. She's got this <laughs> like lingering, uh, just awfulness to it. I feel like, and, and let me know when it's over, like personally, because I feel like it used to last and linger for like minutes, you know, it's just like, yeah. get this out of here. I feel like I should have got some Sour Patch Kids or something like get that <laughs> in mouth, but man. Oh man, I would have had breakfast ready uh, with that shot if, uh, <laughs> Yeah, if, if if the Astros were to to, to have lost, um, yeah, what a what a series. Uh, Wayne, mm-hmm. do you want to do you want to kick it off with any sort of just takeaways from what you saw throughout the series or things that you know? I don't know, just like different like parts of the roller coaster ride for you, uh, having watched it. I mean, that pitching. I think that's just been the what I saw, uh, both the starting pitching as well as the bullpen for the Astros. I think was the key difference maker here. Um, you know, Philly's just they have probably one. I, I think they have like the best lineup, but you know, when you have the best lineup, it doesn't always mean you're always going to be producing all the time, especially if you go against some great pitching. And Astros, man, I think they had you know, the, the three starters, pre, three previous starters just really uh, annihilated it and shut down the Phillies roster there. And then their bullpen was just able to hold it up. Um, and then yeah, uh, Philly's bullpen, they've been good, uh, you know, basically throughout the uh, throughout the playoffs here. But then, you know, Yaron Alvarez gave it up, uh, you know, with that homer, I think, uh, off of um, um, Alderado, I believe, right, or, or I forgot his name. But, yeah, the lefty yeah. over there, the flamethrower, right? And, yeah, uh, I, something something's going to – he's basically like – Alvarez is basically like the David Ortiz for them for this year, I feel like. Just clutch three run shots, uh, man. Shots, uh, clutch three run shots, uh, to basically push him over the hump. And um, I know it was Jeremy Jeremy Pena. I think won the um, the MVP. I believe the MVP World Series or World Series MVP. But um, yeah, in terms of like those big moments, though, it's like Jordan Alvarez definitely uh, gave them uh, a lot of bump for that. And yeah, just a lot to overcome, I think, for the Phillies there. Uh, and, yeah, just great pitching matchups, I think, um, that the uh, Astros presented to shut down the Phillies here. Yeah, I uh, after game four, you know, the combined no-hitter, Christian Javier, the bullpen, I wrote a text out to my brother. I was like, this one's over. Like, I don't know why. Just kind of I had that feeling like that, man, once you've no-hit somebody, especially in, like, this context, uh, you know, it just kind of – got this momentum swing i feel like and you know i think that just loads the team up with confidence like mm-hmm. you absolutely shut this other team down on the road in their own house um come back the next game with verlander you know play a tight game and, and edge them out three two um again the bullpen you know abreu Neris, uh montero presley i mean solid lights out like not giving up runs not putting guys on it it just felt like the phillies bats went frosty right after game three and they could just never find their way back into the series. And uh, it was kind of a slow burn, too. It wasn't like the Astros were running out and just taking these games over one by one. It was just kind of like you could feel also maybe from the Astros side, like they've been so close for so many years, uh, you know, between 2017 and now, where it's like there's probably a little bit of, uh, you know, um, nerves or whatever else that they had overcome to just be able to get that final out and have Dusty, you know, begin celebrating uh, his first, you know, championship as a manager. So um, great series. Uh, Really glad we got at least six games out of it. You know, uh, there were some swings. I felt, you know, that game three, you know, blowout by the Phillies, you know, definitely started to tip the scales a little bit. Even after game one, you started to get some confidence in the Phillies to, you know, take this one. And uh, 
you know, tough pill to swallow for their fan base. You know, luckily they've had a, a recent championship to, to kind of late, you know, sit back on a little bit. Um, so not as, not as much urgency It's not a Cleveland Indian, you know, Indians guardian situation, but uh, yeah, in the same sense, uh, just timely hitting too. Like you said, Jeremy Pena, Jordan Alvarez, Alex Bregman, all these guys had just really big hits when they mattered most, you know, guys on base two outs, um, you know, just an absolute monster blast to center field. There's an absolute no doubter off a lefty thrown a hundred. Like those are big things you got to do to win championships. And uh, they seemingly did that, you know, from the wild card division on. Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, they, they were kind of throughout the playoffs. They were kind of just a steady, like we're going to thrash you and everything type of mentality throughout. And so I think that that just goes to show like Dusty Baker, like he definitely, I think pr- provided that, I guess that veteran uh, presence uh, in the clubhouse for, for the managerial perspective, like, Hey, I've been through all this. We, I get it. Like, Hey, you know, we, we, we got haymakers from, you know, the Mariners and then, you know, with the Phillies here down two one, uh, but we're, we're still good. So I, I think having that managerial um, presence uh, that, Hey, I've been through this, like, hey, I haven't won it all, but that's what I'm hearing for you <laughs> uh, is to help uh, push you all uh, over that, that hump there. Um, so, I think yeah, it was, I think this is great for Dusty Baker. I'm happy for him, uh, and you know, it was a, I think it was a great hire from the, um, the Houston Astros standpoint. I know part of people were thinking like, oh, this is kind of like they're just like you know everybody loves Dusty Baker, so it's like they're they're trying to soften that blow of you know we're just a bunch of cheaters. But um, you know, it, this just goes goes to show like Dusty Baker does offer something from the manager perspective. Um, he definitely took more of that sabermetrics route. Uh, he, you know, I don't think any of the starting pitchers, you know, pitched like eight or nine innings or anything like that. So uh, he, he definitely has adapted towards that model more so. Um, so it, 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 I think it's just great overall for baseball that Dusty Baker finally has like a World Series after like all the things he's been through with, uh, you know, the Cubs and Mark Pryor and, uh, you know, the Steve Bartman fiasco and all that fun stuff. So uh, you know, just getting one with the Astros, I think, was uh, was good for him. Yeah, I mean, ditto. I I feel like he's the kind of guy I don't know him in the clubhouse, obviously, so not sure what he's doing day to day, but you know, knowledgeable of the game, you know, going way back to, you know, probably having to uh, you know, adapt his own game over time as a manager. I mean, able to get every single team he ever managed into the playoffs, like tip your cap to him. That's 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 incredible. Um, but he also just seems genuinely like the father figure a good guy, somebody you'd want to play for, somebody you actually respect. I mean, I feel like that's where the season was lost for the White Sox with a guy like Tony La Russa, you know, coming into, you know, his managerial campaign is coming off a of DUI and, you know, making some colored comments over the years, uh, you know, on race, like that kind of stuff is, is always going to sit, you know, within players deep down inside, whether or not they uh, make a case of it right off the bat. But uh, just in general, I think it's like, how much is this guy, you know, motivate you, or is he somebody you want to listen to on a day-to-day basis? Somebody who can actually motivate you, find the things in your game to, you know, take you that extra step up. And uh, you just got to have confidence in a guy like Dusty because he's been there, he's done it. He just hasn't won the whole thing, but you know, as a player, you feel assured that what he's saying is probably right. Yeah, yeah, no. So I, I, it's great for him, great for us. So uh, Justin Verlander, I know he's had kind of ups and downs with, uh, uh, you know, winning in the World Series. So it was good that he got that that W there uh, and um, 
not to say like you know i feel sorry for him or anything like that he's, <laughs> he's gonna go home to a kid upton so good for him and everything <laughs> he's always, but he's always been a kind of a stand-up guy so and i know he really, he really won a world series uh with the astros and everything so uh, i think you know if he does call it a career like he definitely is the first ballot hall of famer um but at the same time too the astros i feel like they just have a lot of young talent there still and it'll be interesting i think how you know the next coming years how they all try to keep that intact and manage all that um you know with their payroll and stuff so um but yeah kudos to the astros uh from somebody that just lost the bet and had to get you know get a <laughs> shot of malort uh and you know had to water that shit down basically in order for it to go through so um but yeah they definitely earned it and they were probably the most dominant team uh in this whole entire playoffs i would say with that pitching staff just shutting everybody down that timely hitting uh you know and the power that they presented to so yeah, it, it feels like the right team won. I, you know, cheating cheating scandal aside, there's only, I think, five players that are left over from that time. Now, I don't know about the executive staff and, you know, the analytics departments and the other culprits in it all. But, uh, you know, let's just hope that nothing comes out news-wise about more tomfoolery and stuff going on and, you know, not wanting to tarnish uh, this victory versus the one from 2017. But, uh yeah, it's, it's hard to like. I mean, this this like um, bad taste for the Astros. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I think people are going to think about it for a long time. And you know, anytime they make the playoffs again, years you know moving forward, it's it's still going to be one of those like things where I think a lot of people are going to be reluctant to pull for them. Uh, but uh, it's their own fault as an organization, and uh, you know, I guess they're they're trying to uh, turn the page here. But uh, but yeah. yeah um, yeah, I look. I look how you said bad taste, and I I automatically looked at <laughs> uh, this 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 bottle of wort right here. So yeah, do you still taste anything right now? Uh, now now I'm okay. Now I'm okay. Now <laughs> I feel like I've recovered all that. So uh, the water has finally come there, and um, yeah, I'm probably gonna <laughs> probably gonna brush my teeth, and um, I don't eat some sour patch kids after. <laughs> what kind of liquor is it, by the way? Like, you know, I don't even. I don't even know. Like, what does this say? Uh, has the aroma and full-bodied flavor of an of an unusual botanical? <laughs> I don't know what that's supposed <laughs> to be. Yeah. So, it, so, so something from Chicago's botanical gardens is uh, is, yeah. is some sort of root that's uh, fermented over time or something. Thirty-five percent alcohol volume and everything. So, yeah, it, I don't think it actually Weird. particularly says what it is, but yeah, some sort of concoction that's just made to. It's just bitter as hell. So, got it. Yeah. Well, I guess um, you know we talked about Dusty Baker staying on the theme of managers in baseball. Um, the White Sox. We got our guy uh, Pedro Grifol um, moves over from the Kansas City Royals uh, organization as their bench coach to becoming our forty second uh, manager. And uh, you know, heard the news, saw the presser. Um, so far, it looks like they've also added Charlie Montoyo, uh, former. Blue Jays uh, manager of the year in 2020 as the bench coach. And uh, he's bringing over uh, Tim uh, Kosar is, I guess, his hitting coach. Uh, they'll bring over from the Royals. Um, but Wayne, did you have any uh, just, uh, and sorry, Tosar, uh, Mike Tosar is the name of the hitting coach, not Kosar. But um, do you have any thoughts on this hire and what direction you think, you know, the White Sox are moving in and, and how you think it'll fare on the South side? Yeah, I mean, I liked everything that I heard uh, from him, and I, I can definitely see why I think they liked him. I think that, you know, again, from whatever we hear, and I don't know how much truthful it is, but from we, we, what we've been told, right, from the White Sox, is that this was kind of their consensus, like, no-brainer uh, pick for them, so from their interview. Um, 
And I think they also like, interviewed Ozzy and uh, like uh, a couple other people. I think they was it. Um, uh, they might have been interviewed what Joe Spotted too and all that. So yeah, Ron yeah. Washington. Yeah, guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think overall, in terms of like what you're trying to do from an organizational standpoint, um, uh, and also like with with the roster they have right now, I think they definitely need a younger presence and somebody definitely outside of the organization to kind of bring a different a different perspective. Because um, you know, I think the biggest thing for this White Sox team, it's not talent. Uh, it's it, it more so has to do with like the intangible stuff of like their mentality coming into games. You know, how do they manage their their careers and everything a little bit more so? Um, and certainly, you know, having somebody, I guess, that is, you know, Hispanic definitely helps. But he is, a you know, a former catcher. Um, I think he he also has, like, basically taken every single position in, uh, you know, in the clubhouse, essentially. So, you know, whether it be like a, a base coach or a hitting coach, um, bench coach, you know, you name it and has been part of, you know, a world win, uh, a world series winning team from the um uh yeah from the clubhouse standpoint so uh knows what it takes to do that and you know if you look at like that Kansas City team like it was kind of just a bunch of like no names or kind of makeshift type of players you know with uh, like Ben Zobris and then uh, like Lorenzo Kane like you know uh, kind of like quasi all-stars but really good hard nose type of baseball players that you know a little bit more of the old school uh, type of players but then also the new school people also kind of like them too so um so I, I think, you know, bring that mindset and those intangibles, I think, that he presents uh, is great. You know, again, from the catcher perspective, like catchers usually are pretty good uh, uh, managers because they're always thinking about the game and, you know, outs and how to get people out and then, you know, uh, shifts, things of that nature. So it, I, I think it's a I think it's a good so, a solid overall hire, just at least on paper from from this standpoint. Um, you know, would it have been nicer to have a, an organization outside of the Royals? Yes, but <laughs> I think that's the only thing I can fault him on there. So, uh, but overall, hey, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think it was an overall solid mm-hmm. hire from, you know, just kind of analyzing the situation and just seeing what he brings to the table. And, you know, from the press conferences, seems like, you know, he can communicate really well to the media, to uh, probably uh, the players as well. So uh, I think overall, solid hire. You know, we'll see what happens, uh, though, as things progress. Yeah, I I feel the same way. I think when I first saw the news and I heard his name in the mix, I was like, who is this guy from Kansas City? Like, why are we so excited about this? Like, what would he actually bring to the table? But, you know, you start to peel back the layers of the onions. Like, yeah, he does actually represent a lot of the things I think we need at this point. Um, Kind of feels like a Matt Eberflus or like a, you know, John Harbaugh going to the Ravens type hire off the bat. Like, didn't really know the name, really, you know, weren't too sure about, you know, the background or, or what he, you know, excels at as a coach. But, you know, I think you nailed a lot of the top points, you know, a guy who's a catcher, um, you know, could probably, you know, dictate a ball game kind of, you know, just in his press conference overall, it's just kind of seems like a guy who, you know, is a clear leader. He, he, he feels like somebody who's like familial. Like, I just feel like he, he'd be like that uncle or that, you know, that father figure or something. I think a lot of these players, you know, might need, and he's got a gritty background. I mean, he's not coming from like, he was a player and then he instantly became a manager based on his title. Like he's had to work hard for his opportunities and he's like slowly and surely, you know, worked his way up the ranks. And I think a lot of people would respect that a guy like, you know, Mike Schilt or uh, Brian Snitker of the Braves. It's like, I think this kind of managerial hire is becoming more popular um, just for the sake that, you know, this guy's paid his dues and he's just a good human. And I think, you know, we weren't in the interview room with the 18 or so other candidates for this, for this job, but, 
know, for the, for the whole staff to be like blown away by this guy and for the Rick Honda, you know, tell him whether or not we hire you or somebody else gets the opportunity, like you surely deserve a job. So, you know, luckily he's landed with us and uh, I, I like the structure of this staff too, off the bat. Um, you know, bringing over Charlie Montoyo is, is pretty under the radar, but I think an incredible hire, because I think if we had hired Charlie Montoyo outright, I'd have been happy with that. Um, this, you know, for the fact that he's led, you know, the Blue Jays clubs to, you know, playoff bursts and, you know, he, he comes from an analytical background. He came from the race system. So it's like, he's bringing over that kind of knowledge too. He's Latino. That'll, you know, really pair well with Griefel and our, and our, you know, our, our players and, and such. So that's all good. And then um, I've heard good things about Tosar too, as a hitting coach, they, he did a lot of work with uh, Salvador Perez and MJ Melendez to get them to be credible baseball players. I mean, Sal is probably one of the best hitting catchers in the game. So um, that's all positive. I, you know, there aren't a lot of holes in this hire, I think, after, again, looking into it a little bit deeper and uh, you know, not judging him based on his time with KC. But uh, I also wasn't aware off the bat that he was part of that championship team. So, you know, I think he brings over those Aussie ball elements without being Aussie, which I think is is what we kind of want. Like somebody who thinks like Aussie and maybe like wants to, you know, steer the ship like Aussie, but doesn't come with all the all the hoopla. And then we don't have, uh, you know, a guy in his 70s plus who who might be managing too. like I like Ron Washington. But again, do we want to start off with a guy who's at his age? And it's like, how many good years will we get in you before we have to make another decision? So I'm happy with this whole thing. Yeah, no, bring it on. I I feel like that's that's a great analogy there of, you know, he's like Ozzy without the drama in a sense. So in all the theatrics. So, you know, and if you look yeah, what he's produced with uh, uh, Salvio Perez, it's like if he can do that and then uh, do that tenfold, you know, with all the I guess Hispanic players that the White Sox have and kind of just you know, make, maximize the potential out of all the players that the White Sox have, then it's great. You know, if you know, from the hitting standpoint, which definitely we we struggled with, right? That was like our, I think, biggest Achilles heel last season was just, you know, we weren't hitting homers. It's like, how do we have all this talent? We're not hitting any homers and all. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, bringing the, the, the new hitting coach, uh, bringing a you know, veteran uh, coach in Charlie Montoya, uh, and then, you know, being able to just communicate, yeah, with the Hispanic players. I think those are all the key things of, you know, how can, uh, the White Sox progressed from what the, what they were last season, which was just very anemic. Uh, again, from the manager standpoint, you know, uh, hey, uh, you definitely seemed like Tony Larusa had some health issues uh, going into the season, and uh, you know, he definitely has had a Hall of Fame career, but he was definitely anemic. I think in the managing pr- perspective, and I think the players felt that. And you know, hopefully, this can uh, you know bring a little, bit, a little bit more enthusiasm into the game for the White Sox that they were missing last season and get some inspiration. I think going forward, so. Yeah, kind of like also like what you're saying is it's like when you hired a guy like Larusa, you're hiring like the main actor. And I feel like when you bring over a guy like Griefel, he's like the stage crew. And it's like we just need somebody to not be so polarizing to be like, I'm up here and I'm gonna spread my good word down here. It's like somebody who's really on level with a lot of these guys and somebody who can like really speak to who they are as players and like, you know, kind of take a backseat to all the spotlight and everything else and just mm-hmm. manage the game, manage these people. And like, let's see if this team can just stay on the field too. Like we're going into the off season. So could be some, some, you know, tinkering here with the, with the roster, with the staff, but you know, we'll just have to see. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly more excited and now I'm just, I'm in the moment of, of it all. Uh, <laughs> but I feel like it's, it definitely has to do with, uh, 
you know, this coming off season, I feel more optimistic than I did the last off season in that, you know, we, we kind of had, we like know our, where our faults were. And I think going forth, uh, it's been addressed, I think, at least in the manager perspective of like bringing more enthusiasm in there, identifying, you know, something that has a track record of developing players to become better hitters overall. Um, obviously health, that'll be, I think, you know, the, the key thing going forth into next season, but you know, our players, they got healthier towards the end of the season. Great. It's just, you know, next season, can they maintain, you know, a somewhat, you know, fully healthy season, I think, uh, this coming season and then addressing, you know, uh, you know, right field a little bit, or, you know, left-handed at bats, second base, we'll see how that, you know, who's going to fit that spot going forth. Um, and, you know, I, I think all those things will be key things. And then obviously yeah, health and being able to hit homers and, you know, very much more Homer centric type of, uh, uh, um, uh, major league baseball in terms of modern day uh, analytics and everything. I, I feel like if you know if they can address all those things and become more advanced in aspect, which it seems like they they are doing more so of, then I feel like this coming off season, I, I think yeah, it'll be great. I, you know, if they address some of those those things going forth. So for sure. Um, well, we'll keep our eye on you know playoff mo- you know player movement. I guess moving into the off season. Um, you know, speaking of which on the subject uh, for the NFL, uh, lots of player movement over the last past week with some big names, you know, now suiting up for different teams. Um, Wayne, why don't you just kick it off with, uh, you know, one or two, you know, transactions that you saw that really caught your eye and things that, uh, you know, were either wins or losses for the team you're mentioning. Yeah, I, I definitely want to call out uh, Dolphins getting Bradley Chubb. I think that was a great move. You know, uh, I think there's been this whole idea. Are they contenders? Are they not? Maybe, you know, they definitely have a young quarterback, uh, but they they put a lot of talent around him. Uh, but, you know, the, the defensive side, they they needed that pass rusher. And Bradley Chubb definitely does that for them. So, um, you know, it, I, I think the haul that they gave, it was like Bradley Chubb. They got Bradley Chubb and a 2025 fifth rounder. So not going to see that for a while. Uh, but, yeah, they, they did give up Chase Edmonds. Uh, a first rounder and then a 2024 fourth rounder here. So, um, but you know, for an elite pass rusher that I think Bradley, Bradley Chubb is, and you, you definitely saw like what he was able to bring to the table with those Broncos teams. It's like they, the Broncos defense was not the issue. <laughs> they were actually really, really good. Uh, almost like Super Bowl type of, um, uh, in terms of talent and everything there. It's like a Super Bowl like, qualified defense. And Bradley Chubb was one of the reasons why bringing that pass rush pass rushing uh, pass pass rushing effect there. So, I think for the Dolphins like, you know, and they they signed him to an extension as well, which, you know, if you're going to cough up a first rounder, you might you might as well do that. So, I think, you know, definitely for the future, like this is a great pickup for uh the Dolphins, you know, obviously not just for this year, but for the next several years, uh potentially being contenders, you know, with uh with Tua and Tyreek on the offensive side. Uh, Waddle, uh, and then yeah, the playmaker that they have now with Bradley Chubb on the defensive side. When you have a pass rusher, uh, it's it's a lot easier to build a defense around that. So um, I think going forth, you know, uh, the Dolphins are definitely I think I feel like a team to be reckoned with um, for the next several years. So yeah, I, I agree with that. And you know, Jalen Phillips on the other side of the you know the line there for for the Dolphins too. So um, you know, they needed more help on the D side, like you're saying. Um, I think they added Jeff Wilson, too, as a running back. Uh, you know, got rid of Chase Edmonds in that Chubb deal. But uh, Dolphins could be a could be a sneaky team here if they get into the playoffs. Um, you know, I think they're trending that way as of right now. Um, Tua's just got to get fully healthy and get fully out of 
everything that happened in the you know start of the season here. But uh, you know, I think things are definitely trending up for Miami. Yeah, no, for sure. So I, I definitely have them. And then, um, hey, let's talk about our Bears, uh, Chase Claypool. You know, <laughs> of course. Uh, I think. I mean, it's definitely one of those. Like, I get the whole idea that it is. It's definitely a future type of thing for the Bears, right? Um, you know, there's this idea. I guess are they buyer, they're sellers. You know, but I think with Ryan Poles and where he's at right now, he's trying to position the team for not just next year or this year, but for the next five years with. Justin Fields probably as the helm because, you know, if he's not able to surround Justin Fields, who I think everybody's kind of agreed and he would not have taken the job, I feel like, if he didn't believe Justin Fields was a capable quarterback. Um, but, you know, as a GM, you know, if you have a young quarterback with the talent level of Justin Fields, it's your job and it's going to be your fault if you don't develop him properly. And, you know, if you look at uh, the the free agent market, I think, for this upcoming offseason, um, it just isn't there. I, I think like the best one, uh, uh, the best free agent, I was like shark or something like that. Like he's mm. not, he's not someone you're going to pay top dollar for, for a wide receiver. So I think that came into play of like, Oh, Hey, we have, you know, s- several draft picks. Uh, you know, Hey, let's see w- what we can get with the second rounder. Um, I think it was kind of a twofold effect with chase Claypool potentially going to uh, the Packers, I think was yeah. another team yeah. that was, was rumored. So you know, for me, at least, it was like, it makes sense, I guess, in that aspect of, you know, Chase Claypool, like, had an excellent, excellent uh, rookie season, I think, you know, as far as that goes. And I I actually preferred him over Komet uh, when we uh, drafted Komet, uh, you know, I think several years ago. Uh, he's a great, you know, he, he's definitely a solid, uh, deep, uh, uh, deep route threat, which I think favors, for sure, uh, Justin Fields. Uh, but also, he's actually a pretty solid blocker. I mean, he's like 6'4", like 230 or something like that. So, you know, definitely well built there and can block. And I think there were some questions like, oh, maybe he actually could be like a tight end type of, you know, uh, like a Travis Kelsey type of uh, tight end there. So, uh, you know, I, I think he can definitely work well in bunch formations. So I, I, I think from the offense that the Bears have right now and potentially in the, in, you know, the next several years, I think he's... Definitely a solid haul. Uh, obviously, would I have preferred that second rounder? Sure. But I think from the second round standpoint, it makes sense. The wide receiver draft class, I think, from what I've seen, what, what I've been seeing, uh, after the first round, uh, it, it definitely isn't as appealing, I think, maybe, you know, compared to last season or the years prior. So um, I think those are my initial thoughts uh, from the Chase Claypool, uh, Chase Claypool standpoint. But Overall, I think it was a solid, uh, a solid uh, uh, choice for the Bears. Yeah, I, I saw ESPN gave the the trade like a D plus for the Bears on this one, and I think majority of the reason is because Claypool uh, will be a free agent after next season. So unless we extend him, you know, was a second round pick worth it to bring him over? To these analysts, it wasn't. But like you were mentioning, if the Packers are in play there, and you know, you know, Rogers going to be around for three more years. And the wide receiver pool for free agents is pretty thin. You know, we need a guy who can be plugged in right away. Somebody who can work with fields over the next year and a half. Uh, yes, there's a possibility of extending him. I don't think we've done it just yet, but I think we also can take a look at what he's going to do for the rest of this year and decide how much is he actually worth. And, you know, dangle an offer out there that I think, you know, works for both sides, uh, you know, for the, you know, mid to short, you know, long term, if it, if it happens to be something that's super exciting, but you know, I think a second round pick is is what the fair price was. And, you know, like you said, Claypool popped in his first year for sure. Um, got a little bit crowded in, you know, 
the Steelers wide receiver core for, you know, maybe his numbers, something like that. But uh, I know there was some question marks with his maturity. I know Tomlin, you know, constantly poked at Claypool and there were some sound bites around videos I've seen over the years where, you know, Tomlin's kind of like picking on him or whatever else, but like, you know, at this point he's got, you know, almost three years log um, plus in the NFL. I think he is a good receiver. I think at the very least he can be, you know, a second receiver for the team. And, uh, you know, given at where Fields is with his receiving core, I mean, think about Pickett just lost Claypool and Claypool is probably like one of four options for him. Whereas like the Bears, I don't know if they've got outside of like Mooney having a good year last year, if they actually had some legit options at the NFL level for Fields. So I think a lot of what we talk about with Justin Fields is, I think he gets nitpicked a lot. I think he gets a lot of undue criticism when he doesn't have like an NFL level receiving core or you know even protection so i think this is a start of good things you know another trade that popped was the roquan you know smith deal and you know we got baltimore second round pick and i think a fifth with that one so like you were saying with the you know pick we dangled was ours which i don't think we wanted to get rid of in this claypool deal but in the same sense we were pressed because packers were probably offering up you know their second which was probably a tick better than baltimore's at this point so you know, you got to make that move if uh, if you want to be a little bit serious. So um, I'm cool with what Poles has been doing so far. I think he's pulling the right strings. I trust this. I think I think we can count on Claypool to be a solid NFL receiver for us. I mean, he's got some upside there too. He could be a one. He could be, um, but we'll just have to see. But I but I like the deal too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And adding more onto that um, with regards to like free agency, like you know, it's it's definitely been always said that we have. Uh, coming going into uh, this off season, right? It's like we're gonna have like what a hundred million dollars or something like that too. So you know, again, without that free agent or that wide receiver free agent that we can uh, you know offer a bunch of money to, that's worth all that money. I think is the key thing there. Like not a, not a, a, a you know a Christian Kirk, right? Uh, somebody that is actually worth the money there. So trading that second round pick doesn't seem as bad, especially if he is you know going to take that next step and be like, okay, hey, yeah, I'll. I'll play ball with you, Justin Fields. You know, my buddy Cole Komet is here, so I'm going to be cordial and everything there. So it definitely it makes it so that, okay, you know, maybe we're not going to concentrate as much on the wide receiver core, uh, especially, hey, if also Nikhil Harry can also show up a little bit too, be that, you know, that second type of, you know, uh, big wide receiver option and then have Moody, you know, maybe play more in the slot, which, you know, I think he's maybe more suitable there, uh, you know, for, for Justin Fields. So, um and then, hey, add in some, you know, more reinforcements on the offensive line. You know, maybe uh, get Gasecki at at tight end, and you know, maybe they can play more two tight end sets. Uh, maybe they do want to resign, you know, Cole Komet, or I don't know what the situation we want with Cole Komet is. He just hasn't been catching that many balls this season. Uh, pretty good blocker and everything. So maybe you know, if he is open to staying there, uh, kind of like as that second tight end, and then have Gasecki be more that uh, pass catching uh, type of tight end, then. You know, I think that can be a definitely a a great uh, offensive team going forth. And yeah, adding more pieces on the offensive line, you know, upgrading on center, you know, maybe adding in a tackle, uh, you know, on the right side. There's, I think, there's a lot, uh, a lot of room left to grow uh, on that side. I think Jenkins. It sounds like he's kind of uh, taking over that right guard's uh, spot. Um, nobody wants to see Mustafa at center. I feel like, and you know, it's definitely, I, I don't feel like it's been determined if like Lucas Patrick or even moving Cody Whitehair in there would be the best fit. So that's always where I think upgrading the offensive line. And then yeah, defensive line and, 
you know, linebacker now a little bit more so of, I feel like on the defensive side, Hey, put that a hundred million dollars, allocate it, you know, appropriately towards, you know, uh, free agents on those sides, which I think I saw, you know, some decent, uh, defensive ends and, and DTs that I think can fit there. And then, yeah, utilize the rest of your draft capital. I feel like for, for the rest of the spots. So I think overall, uh, polls is setting up again for the next couple of years, uh, which I think is smart, you know, compared to, I think Ryan Pace was definitely like, no, things need to happen now. Let's get rid of all our draft picks and, and see what happens. So, um, overall, I think polls, you know, it's definitely a wait and see, but I think overall he's positioning himself up for success. So, yeah, I think it, um, definitely takes away some of the desperation heading into the off season to be like, we got to make a splash of wide receiver. You know, that definitely takes a lot of leverage away from us. As a club, if you're working with somebody's agent, they're like, well, we know you're screwed if you don't sign our guy. So um, I took a quick look at who might be free. I mean, Juju Smith-Schuster, Michael Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was one other on the – Jacoby Myers perhaps would be a nice, like, two or three. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, looking at that core, it's like, you're right. I mean, I think Claypool's in the same conversation as those guys, so why not just go out and get him now? So um, I like what you're saying. I think, yeah, we've got a lot of holes around the roster that – you know, need to be addressed. And I think we're making the right steps. And uh, the team's been actually playing pretty decently uh, this year without a lot of this stuff. So, you know, just think if, uh, you know, you can get some more young depth and then get some, you know, solid veterans to surround them with. I think, I think we're moving in the right direction for this club. Yeah. And we have that first round or everything. I think right now we're positioned like maybe like pick 14 or like mid, mid first rounders. So if, Hey, you know, uh, if, if now is the time to tank, I feel like now is the time to tank and then see if we can upgrade that pick. Uh, there's some, you know, excellent talent, I think, you know, position for us, uh, you know, if, if we were to get like a top 10 pick, uh, whether it be, you know, adding in, say, uh, another, uh, adding in a wide receiver of some sort uh, in, into that group or, uh, you know, there's some solid defensive ends, I, th- I think, and um, that are draftable in that area as well as some DTs and OTs as well. So overall, I think we're set up for, for a pretty good uh, next couple of years, um, especially as we see Justin Fields progress, uh, you know, without as much talent as I feel like a lot of other young quarterbacks uh, have right now. So for sure, I guess sticking on football, you know, we're heading into week nine. Um, just curious if you have any other impressions that you wanted to share from week eight or, you know, kind of going through this week or where you think, you know, just things generally stand in the NFL. I mean, in terms of like where things stand, I'd say I, you know, Bills, I think are the best team right now. I think you, you, you definitely call them out as like being uh, the Super Bowl contenders. You know, it, I think we're all kind of just waiting for the Bills at this point <laughs> versus uh, the Chiefs in like the, the AFC championship game, which I think that would be awesome. So, you know, hey, if that happens, then I think that'd be a great thing for football. Um, it's also interesting that the Titans are like five and two. Uh, and they're they're kind of having a, a quarterback controversy as well. So I don't know if that's like the best thing. Like, hey, if Malik uh, Willis kind of you know does like a, a Lamar Jackson and you know goes on a winning streaks and everything there, and you know pushes them through the playoffs, um, then great. Uh, you know, it it, it it would definitely be I think good for you know the Titans. I think for their uh, for their future and kind of progressing Malik Willis in that sense. So, um, but you know, I, I definitely you know as uh, an AFC Ravens fan, like the Ravens are my favorite team, I think out there, you know, it sounds like they're progressing. It sounds like, you know, uh, they definitely uh, had kind of running back issues there, but, you know, with, I think Gus Edwards being healthy and then, and uh, Kenyon Drake being healthy there, I think they're a good. Uh, they're going to be, I think a good team stepping forth. And, 
you know, health wise too on the defensive end, you know, they're getting what Ojabo uh, and browser as, you know, the pass rushers out there. So uh, I feel like they're only going to get better defensively. And that was definitely, I feel like was missed, um, you know, from the team uh, up to this point. So I think adding those players, um, I think will be better, uh, better for them, I think going forth. So, uh, and they also added Jason Pierre Paul. So, you know, from the pass rushing standpoint, like I feel like they have enough assets uh, from the, uh, for the Ravens to actually progress there, along with that awesome secondary that just hasn't performed, I feel like, because of the pass rush. So um, I think, yeah, all those are my initial, I think, AFC thoughts there. But, um, yeah, do you have any thoughts uh, on either the NFC teams? I know those Eagles, man, they're 8-0 and and everything. Uh, yeah, would love to have you know your take on things. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like there's three, like, above-the-pack teams in the NFL. It's, you know, like you said, the Bills, it's the Chiefs, it's the Eagles, as far as like my top three, I would go. And I think there's like this middle tier. Um, for me, I, I feel like the Niners, uh, even though the record doesn't really show it, are one of those teams for me, especially after the Christian McCaffrey accus- you know, acquisition. I think that'll do something to their offense that they don't even expect. I mean, like that guy, you know, obviously had like a pass, uh, a reception and a you know, rush for a touchdown last, last uh, week. I mean, it's just a sample of what it'll give you week to week if he stays healthy. Um, but just a run first culture like that, great you know, defensive line and a really smart coaching staff. I think that's a team that's gonna, you know, kind of grow over the season. Uh granted, CMC stays healthy. I also think Dallas, um, I'm not a Dallas guy. Like I never I never have been really in like the last 15, 20 years. I just don't get to like Super Bowl with the Cowboys. But you know, when they're putting their bread and butter on the defensive side of the ball, and it's it's less about the playmakers and it's more about like, you know, I don't know, uh just just pounding it out, grounding it out, you know, just being a tough nosed team. I mean, they're, they're definitely shutting teams down on the defensive side. So I think they're the type of team too, that uh, if they don't let their heads get to them, they could be, they could be in the mix. But uh, I always, I always struggle with Dallas because I think there's just way too much spotlight year to year on that club. And uh, you know, I've got to see Dak prove it at this point. I mean, he's got to, he's got to show us that he's, you know, beyond mature, he's healthy. Um, and uh, you know, you can incorporate that running game, especially a guy like Tony Pollard, just needs to rock more often and kind of make Ezekiel like the feature, you know, side piece on that team. Cause you know, it's kind of clear to us now who's, who's in the mix, but, um, you know, Minnesota, they've got you know kind of a Tennessee Titans vibe to them. I feel like, you know, six and one leading the NFC North. I'm just not, I'm not there yet. Um, I love me some Kirk cousins. You know, I do, uh, very boring, probably shows up with like an old Navy sweater to, to Thanksgiving, but you know, you got to love the guy. I mean, he's just, <laughs> he's just, he gets his teams there. Uh, I just want to see him, yeah, maybe take a bump this year, but uh, that's all I really got, I got for the NFC. I I feel like it's a lot more shallow out there than it is in the AFC. I think AFC's got a lot more depth to it, a lot more surprises that could you know come out of the woodwork, especially the team like Miami, like we were talking about. Cincinnati just still, you know, I know Jamar Chase got injured, but if he can get better, you know, I think they could be in it too. But uh, it's been a fun year of football so far. But uh, yeah, I, I see it that way. I'm still kind of sticking with my Bills pick. I'm gonna have to pivot a little bit on the on the Buccaneers at this point I don't want to uh I don't want to fully count them out because you know TD12 always has some magic you know left in his bag there but uh you know the Eagles if they don't uh, shoot themselves in the foot I mean they they could walk into this thing healthy fresh best record in the league they could be you know just fully backed to uh to waltz their way into the Super Bowl yeah no for sure I think that Eagles team like I think, I mean, yeah, as long as they stay healthy, like defensive wise, 
Like it's hard to be any team with that, with that defensive front, with that secondary that they have, like there's, there's hardly any team. I think that can compete with, uh, you know, the amount of talent and then also obviously execution on that front. I think, uh, you know, I'm just looking at, I guess, points against, uh, at least in the NFC, they're second in terms of points to the Cowboys just by two points. So, um, you know, and the Cowboys, they have, you know, Diggs being a playmaker on, on you know, in the secondary front. And then obviously our pick for, you know, Micah Parsons as defensive player of the year. So, uh, but the, the Eagles team, I think they just have a lot of talent spread out. I'm hoping that, you know, I'm looking at the offseason a little bit, uh, hoping that the Bears can acquire a few of those pieces uh, in the offseason there. But, uh, you know, I, I definitely like them. I think coming out of the NFC, uh, the NFC just in general, uh, we'll see how things progress, but I do like your take. I think in the 49ers, uh, you know, with McCaffrey, like, you know, it definitely is like, you know, why, why are they paying so much for uh, a running back? Right. But you can definitely see where he just fits really well with them. Um, and yeah, that was just like what week two, I think he, he tossed those uh, week two with the team where he tossed, you know, the touchdown received a touchdown, uh, ran in for a touchdown. Like that's just uh, one week. So again, yeah, if he can stay healthy, like the way that uh you know Shanahan kind of works, I feel like this is a this is a match made in heaven. But you know, uh, it, I think it's always a question of can Garoppolo actually like you know do you know make a couple plays here and there when he can uh, with that team. But obviously, you know, they do have some you know good play calling. I think from the Shanahan standpoint, the run game, and then yeah, Debo Samuel definitely is a difference maker. So. Uh, and a solid offensive line. So if if they can, great. But it's hard to go against. I feel like against the Eagles at this point. But yeah. So we will see uh, week nine happening uh, today as we speak on Sunday morning. So we'll be sure to you know have some points going into next week. But uh, transitioning over to the NBA, um, you know, a lot of crazy things are happening in Brooklyn right now. Um, Wayne, we can we can. Pick one of the other sides here if you want to start off with Ime Udoka as a possible coach and the Nash firing, or we'll dive right into Kyrie Irving. I'll let you uh, have the floor. I feel like I feel like Udoka is a more appropriate, like uh, <laughs> you know, lead off in a way. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it definitely is like one of those. So, like, I guess what he committed adultery, but you know, I don't know the whole situation between him and Nia or, or anything like that. Like, maybe they have their own thing within their marriage, which, Hey, if that's what they're into, that's what they're into, you know, go for it. Right. Um, but you know, it, it definitely kind of just goes to show like the two sides of the NBA, right. Or the two sides of anybody that, Oh, you saw you perform. You saw in your first season, you brought uh, a young up and coming type of team with, you know, enough talent to, you know, uh, make a run. You brought them to the finals and everything. Um, Great. Can we do that with, you know, with KD, Kyrie, et cetera? Uh, then, yeah, we, we, we'd love to have you here. So I, I feel like, you know, the Nets were like, hey, you know, you violated uh, corporate policy. We don't care as long as you can win. I feel like that's the mentality more so for the Nets, where it definitely felt like the Celtics were being like, whoa, 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 that's crossing the line there. That's way too much drama for even, you know, you, even though you did, you did produce, right? Um, that's just way too much drama for us, for our, you know, what we are as stands and organization. So I feel like out of all things like this, it just goes to show like the two different ways that these two franchises approach these things. Uh, that being said, it's like, you know, the Celtics have been really, you know, they've been really good for a while, right. Uh, in terms of their championships, in terms of, you know, how they've managed the team, I think in the past decade or two, you know, you know, with get, getting, you know, KG Paul Pierce, 
uh, Ray Allen, that team as well, you know, Rondo, et cetera, uh, developing that team. And then, you know, now the team that they have right now, you know, training some of those assets to acquire picks so that they can acquire the, you know, essentially the team that they have right now, right, with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. So, you know, I feel like uh, it's definitely one of those, uh, you know, we'll see what Adoka can do in uh, in the, with the Nets, you know, I guess uh, whenever he does join the team or whatever. So uh, versus, you know, it's, it seems like the, the Celtics right now are, they're doing pretty good without him at the moment. So, you know, I guess it just goes to show like how much does an NBA coach really matter, you know, in the NBA with all that talent. It's like, okay, I feel like half the job is don't screw this up. Make sure, yeah, obviously put your team in position to win, but like how much of it is towards that versus, you know, obviously just having a, a talented team that where you, you can just be aligned on the game plan. And maybe that's what matters more than, you know, being some, uh, being more of a persona, uh, per, you know, in, in that sense. So, um, but yeah, what do you think about at least that situation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Lakers are to Maury Povich as the Brooklyn Nets are to Jerry Springer. I mean, it is like <laughs> <laughs> it is like an absolute, you know, dumpster fire out there right now. Um, for Ime Udoka, you know, going back to his, what he did over the offseason for the Celtics, it felt like what he did obviously violated team policy, but it went beyond that in some sort of way that just hasn't been communicated to the public for whatever reason. And you know, that's a character thing. Um, you know, I think it's an awareness thing as a coach, as a leader to know like right from wrong and like what you need to do in your position and kind of like how to maintain that and everything else. But he is a good basketball coach. I mean, he proved that last year and he did prove that also when he was a part of the Brooklyn Nets staff. I mean, he was an attractive, you know, candidate, um, you know, when he became eligible. So I think he can do the job. I think he can do the job of being a head coach in the NBA. And I think him getting another opportunity, especially not to just like sit out the entire year, which is so like so stupid, like nobody is going to sit out a full year and then get, you know, somehow like reincorporated back in as head coach with all this, like, you know, just, just excess baggage. Like no, no team's going to want to put that, that put that on themselves and the team going into the, you know, the year after. So I think transitioning out, getting Joe Missoula, into the head coaching role for Boston. Great thing. He was already plugged in. Getting Udoka to Brooklyn, whether it's with KD, Kyrie, and everybody for the long term, it's a good fit for him and for, you know, I think the Brooklyn Nets. It's like, you know, hopefully they can get past what actually happened uh, last offseason, but in the same sense, like, he knows that organization. He knows, like, that staff, that exec staff, the ownership group. Like, it's a good enough fit, but it's with these guys right now into, like, reverse the trends of what's been happening so far to start this year. Like I think one thing would have to happen and uh, it's probably going to transition into our next conversation, but I think you get rid of Kyrie Irving somehow, some way in some trade release him if it comes to that. But like, I think there's been enough like rumors to this point where there are teams that are interested enough to take the shot. And I would just take the shot. I just like, take the shot and uh, see what you can do with the rest of this uh, roster, because there is enough talent still there to uh, compete in the Eastern conference for, you know, a deep, you know, playoff run potentially. But uh, I think you just got to get rid of the cancer. That's uh, kind of flowing through the bloodstream of the Nets organization. Yeah, I know for sure. I, I, I mean, for me, at least I, it, it definitely seems like, is is Kyrie just it or is the entire organization it? I feel like I think, you know, from the top down, it seems like they they just got some issues. Either they're 
tolerating stuff uh, or they are willing to, um, you know, kind of pull some strings in order to, I don't know, uh, I guess, win or achieve some sort of roster that that can be perceived to win versus like the Celtics for, you know, at least from my standpoint, it seems like the Celtics want to do it in a wholesome way, right? Like, uh, hey, you know, we had these policies uh, get violated or whatever. Like, you know, they're very much more team policies rather than, like, I don't know, moral standard type of policies, right? From a grander, uh, from a, I guess, a higher end point of view. So uh, it definitely feels like the Nets, just as an organization, at least at this point, they just care about, you know, looking good and winning, I guess, but they're not doing either one well, pretty well at the moment, I feel like. Uh, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit winning, I guess, better, but um, yeah, they just haven't been able to put it all together. So, but yeah, let's maybe transition to Kyrie. Let's talk <laughs> about this. What is, what is your take about this whole idea if you want to set the table and and you know give your thoughts on it? Yeah, just to touch on what you said, I feel like it's like they're from the ownership GM perspective, I feel like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You're damned if you do take all this BS because it's just an ongoing circus. You know, you're constantly putting out fires. But if you if you don't and you you know start making moves, then hey, you're the you're the staff, you're the ownership group that got rid of all these all-stars and you're starting back from like a middle of the conference on down with whatever, you know, trades you pull out. So they're in a tough They're you know, they've been tightrope in it for a while. I, I shift a lot of this blame on the players. I think they came in with an agenda. They came in with an air of arrogance, not even confidence, arrogance in how they were going to assume their roster spots. It wasn't about being basketball players. It was about being GMs. It was about being owners. It was about being like, you know, mega stars in the world. It was like, they chose that situation to do exactly what they wanted to do and they've done it. And this is the result of what they've decided to do. And uh, Kyrie's stuff. I mean, we could, we could go over the documentary. We could talk about, you know, the ins and outs of what we've heard over the last week. I feel like this is all common knowledge at this point, like what was actually posted, what the reaction to it was, where he's currently at with his suspension. Like we got the five games and we're kind of testing the waters, whether or not he, you know, goes by this list of five things. I think Shams of NBA, like, put it out. Like, here's the five things he has to do to get himself back on the court or whatever. But I just want to break down, like, Kyrie again. I feel like there's a lot of things that go through my mind when I think about the decision he made. But, like, I think at the core of it, it's like he just has a thirst for attention at his level that, uh, you know, only a, a handful of people, I feel like, kind of want. I feel like this is like a Donald Trump thing. This is a Kanye West thing. This is like, I need eyeballs on me for, for any reason, but, but, but for like very shock worthy, uh, very, um, you know, buzzworthy type events, type topics. And it's always kind of like steering negative. And uh, I think he likes it. I think he likes that attention. Um, I kind of like, you know, just kind of equate it to like, he's a middle sibling. He's got, you know, older sister, younger sister. He's like, he's got that, like that annoying, uh, you know, need to like irritate, to like push buttons, to push back against, you know, I think he's got this like plot against the meat, the mass media in a lot of what he puts out there. It's just like, he, I think he likes playing the mind games. He likes playing the word games. He likes to have people sit back with their, you know, their uh, whiteboards and try to figure out, okay, he said this and that links to this. And, you know, here's why you know, we're wrong and he's right or vice versa. It's like, I just think he likes to deceive. He likes to, he likes to push buttons in a lot of ways. And uh, a lot of this is anchored around the racial awakening, uh, social justice movement in this country and where he stands with that. And, and I'm on board with him in that sense. I'm on board with 
what core issues he has a problem with in this country when it comes to, you know, black rights, uh, the treatment of African-Americans over time, the history of discrimination, all this stuff, it all makes sense, but it's, it's the way he chooses to attack it. It's the way he chooses to uh, footnote it, to cite it with you know, garbage like this documentary that he put out there. Um, you know, a documentary that basically uh, debunks the Holocaust that basically, you know, you know, pulls little pieces and parts of Adolf Hitler quotes and tries to spin it in a way that makes like the entire, you know, white Jewish population feel like they've stolen, feel like they've, you know, wronged, uh, you know, the black race. I feel like it's, um, it's, it's just wrong in the sense that I, I feel like he knows what he's doing and I don't think, I don't think there's any confusion there truly, but I think it's always, you know, addressed with confusion. It, it, he adds confusion to confusion and, I think that's the wrong part of it because we have a generation that's growing up with all this technology, with all this access to information, with a lot of ability to be impressionable uh, with these messages that are put out there from stars that you want to emulate, guys with lots of talent and are cool and are signed by Nike and, you know, uh, run with LeBron James and, you know, all this other stuff. Like he is a guy that people want to, you know, emulate in a way. Kids want to emulate in a way. And I just think like what he does with his platform is, it's just so irresponsible. And, um, you know, I know it took a while for the NBA to respond for the Nets to respond, but at least they did. I mean, at least they didn't, you know, take a Houston Astros championship approach to it and do absolutely nothing with it. Um, but the other thing I'll throw out there before I get off my soapbox is, uh, I think there's also a part of Kyrie that wants to get off this Nets team and wants to be traded. And I think he will do anything or, you know, everything to make himself unattractive to either get released, get traded, you know, have his freedom again, like whatever it is. But I think with the decision he made about this documentary, it's moving beyond basketball to his sponsorships and to other things that will make him money where it's like, okay, now I'm going to have to retread a little bit. I'm going to have to apologize because I took this a little bit too far and I didn't probably think that it would get to this level. But I think there's an element to him where he's like, you know, it's this fight or flight thing. I don't think he's a fighter. I think he's ready to to flee to find another situation that he can be a star in again and see if that works out there. But uh, man, his time's running out uh, quickly. Yeah, no, I think I think those are good points. Um, you know, it, it would be funny though. Yeah, if Kyrie, uh, if you know, I don't know, they were to trade like him for Russell Westbrook, right? I think I've seen that floated around. Uh, I don't know if that situation's any better, at least from the Nets standpoint. Maybe, you know, maybe better for the Lakers and. And that that whole fiasco, but yeah, I definitely feel like Kyrie and Kanye just ought to like they ought to get like on a podcast together and just like talk things, you know, talk things out, and we'll see what happens with that. But uh, I feel like there's just a lot of, um, yeah, I, I I don't know what it is. I don't know if it is like narcissism or if it's just uh, you know the idea to be different. All I know is that you know everybody kind of like wants to play sometimes the victim of their own. Uh, of their own story right or be the protagonist and sometimes i feel like you know uh you know, i guess the free free spirited free minded type of people right um uh will approach any type of information that kind of catapults that perspective from them a little bit more so right uh you know we see that with kanye and then yeah obviously now with Kyrie, it's like Kyrie's or, or kanye is like what the the richest black man in, in america or something like that, or one of the richest and you know Kyrie is definitely successful in his own in his own uh, ways as well. So, um, and I get 
now I'm looking like online and I'm like, I'm seeing the worst of humanity. I feel like when, <laughs> these old things like, yeah, you know, we're all for Kanye and, and all that. He's speaking truths and, and all these things, especially, you know, with, with Kyrie, but then it's like, well, is this, is this going to be breeding now uh, more like anti-Semitic, uh, you know, uh, thoughts or, or uh, uh, on actions out there, right? Like that's where I'm like, you know, afraid for maybe my, my, my uh, my Jewish friends, it's like, are, are we going to see more vitriol similar to kind of how we saw, you know, with, you know, with Trump and everything? Uh, it's like, hey, you can be right about 10% of things, but then if you're going to act on those 10% of things that, you know, maybe you're right on or, or, what, or what have you, or at least what you view as right, then it's like, are you going to also like elicit violence? Are you going to uh, uh, say that my group is worse off than your group? Because I think that was my biggest thing is like, we oftentimes played this victim olympics if you will right where it's like oh you know yeah black people had slavery but you know the jewish people had the holocaust or whatever and then now we got to like oh well you know uh the the the, you know the white jews overtook the the black jews and enslaved them and stuff like that that's where this just becomes like hey we're in today's you know today right not 100 years ago we're in today the people that did all those things 100 plus years ago or, or or whenever they're not alive today well what about today what's happening right now are we always going to linger on the past and you know what the fathers of our fathers did to you know somebody else's fathers uh then it's like that becomes this whole essentially like gang culture right where uh oh you wronged me or somebody you know from your past wronged me therefore i must wrong you i must you know shoot somebody from your clan if you will so that's where the, i feel like this just there's no this is the most unproductive stuff that I feel like that can happen in, you know, today's society, as opposed to, Hey, here are the things that yeah, might've happened in the past. How do we move forward? How do we, you know, change certain systems? How do we, you know, bring more inclusivity here? Like those are not the conversations that are being had. It's more like, Oh, the past, it sucks. And uh, everybody that has wronged me, they ought to, you know, like, what do you want? What do you want to happen to them? Uh, you want, pitchforks and and fire and stuff like that or or what like what's the end goal here because all i hear is like you know people with big platforms like several millions of followers on social media and what we've seen in the past is that when you have a strong following you know we talk about influencers and influencer culture right like you know i've been you know a victim if you will of uh oh i'll go see i'll go see a nice restaurant on instagram oh i gotta try that burger now or whatever now it's extrapolated from you know, oh, I see a, a meme about or I see Kyrie now, you know, posting some something that might be anti-Semitic or, you know, uh, push out some beliefs that maybe I hold inwards towards myself uh, and then and then project that onto somebody else. Right. Um, that's what we saw kind of like as a um, an example uh, from there was that I don't know, the TV show, The Boys. I might have talked about that before. Right. But kind of like superheroes. Right. Um, uh, some guy was like you know, low level in his career, I think just working at a basic, like, I don't know, like a uh, grocery job or whatever, not there's anything against that. Right. Uh, but it's like, you know, kind of a, a low life, if you will, like live, live with his mom or something like that as well. Um, so the, you know, the, the, the worst, I guess, in the totem pole of, of dudes, you know, so, and then he saw, the, you know, started watching like this misrepresentation of stuff of like alternate media of, Oh, so like the, um, I think it was like the superheroes, if you are like are, are taking over everything about us, kind of like an analogy of, hey, you know, some other group, uh, whether it be immigrants, whether it be, 
yeah, you know, I think that's maybe what they're calling more so of are trying to take away our everyday life, right? And they're attacking my group. That's where I feel like this this is where things could be headed, you know, if uh, I guess people like Kyrie Irving and Kanye, they're not held accountable of, you know, their influence. And I think they don't know their influence of what is the worst possible thing that can happen from you saying these words. It's that somebody can say like, oh, Kyrie, Kanye, who, you know, we hold in, in esteem and our culture and all that. They're saying these things. I, I agree with that. And now I'm going to act on it by, you know, doing something awful. Right. So that's where I feel like it needs to be. He doesn't know, realize the power, like either him or Kanye realize the power that they have and influence that they have on people do acting and doing things that are destructive towards your fellow man. And that's where I feel like, yeah, they, something needed to be said or addressed there from the organizational standpoint. And I honestly, I have no idea what's going to happen to Ky- Kyrie. Like one of the most talented players I've ever seen, like, you know, coolest dribbles in the world, but how do you come back from this? I feel like it's, it's going to be fun and hard. I feel like, but yeah, a lot of things are going to have to take place. Yeah. I mean, or they understand what their power is and they just don't care. I mean, they're careless in their approach. They're like, you know, Kanye obviously has gone through a wave of uh, mental health issues. He's got a recent divorce. I mean, his life could be in a pretty dark place right now. So like him airing all out, all this passion, all these problems that he has, or, you know, kind of moving into, you know, what could be uh, an anti-Semitic type approach. I mean, that could be ultimately what he's trying to drive. He's trying to drive more hate. And uh, I think the problem is, is like, fighting hate with promoting hate is a, is an option. It's an approach, but it's not a solution. And, uh, you know, I just, it kind of reminds me if you're at work or, you know, in a group or whatever else, and everybody just talks about all the problems. They just talk about the problem with what you're putting out there with what the you know organization's putting out there, but it's like, okay, well, what do you, what's the answer then? What's the actual solution? And, uh, you know, people that are doing it the right way are putting together plans. They're trying to, like you're saying, build equity. They're trying to, you know, think about reparations. They're trying to think about, you know, tax credits and other things that could like, you know, truly uplift, truly help. And, uh, you know, it seemingly, it seemingly started off well for Kyrie when, you know, the, the, the wake of George Floyd, you know, the murder and everything else, it seemed like his messaging and his approach seemed very, you know, humble. I've heard he's done a lot of great things in the community. People back that up um, in terms of what he actually does on a proactive side of things. But again, you can do all these good things. And it just takes like that one careless destruction, you know, destructive type decision, like, you know, posting a anti-Semitic, you know, documentary without a lot of citations, uh, you know, to the world and uh, you know, look at how the world's reacted now. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just another thing, another drop in the bucket for this guy. Uh, yeah, I don't think he can be, I don't, I don't think he could be helped him. He's 30 years old. I mean, I think if this kid, you know, was 22, if he was Aunt Edwards making a homophobic slur, uh, you know, those are things that, and it's going to learn from and hopefully never ever does it again. But like you're 30 years old, dude, like you've been through the ringer, you know how this world kind of operates media, basketball, you know, race. I mean, you've, you've played on this before, but uh, you know, we're, we're, we're here still. Uh, if I was Josiah or Sean Marks, I would do whatever I could to salvage any value for this guy because the hope of him, like not only just stopping all this, but like, actually giving a crap about playing basketball <laughs> it's like it's mind-blowing because you watch them i mean the other night they they came into a game without him and went on the road to washington and like durant did like a really nice uh you know one two step and 
shook uh, Daniel Gafford to the floor. It's like, I'm sure he's just like, let's go play basketball, man. And it's like, got to be refreshing a little bit to be on the court and not have to worry about all this other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, it, it definitely is like, you know, I, I, I don't know his, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but I, I do wonder about, I guess, Kyrie's mental health, similar to Kanye in that sense. It's like, you know, when you're, you're always contemplating uh, of all the issues of the world, right? When that's like 70% of your focus, that's like 70% of like what all you can talk about. Like that's just a slippery slope of destruction for yourself. Right. So, you know, that's where I see it's like something needs to, I guess, occur in that sense or some sort of intervention to be like, Hey man, like you have a platform, you can be positive about this. You can try to switch it up, talk about, you know, anti-Semitism more rather than like, like, Hey, I get it. it, If there is one good thing to kind kind of come out of this is like, to learn more about, I guess, you know, the, the, uh, you know, kind of uh, that there are like black Jews out there and, and how that kind of whole progress. And, you know, cause I, you know, to be honest in, I definitely agree with Kyrie on this aspect of like, a lot of these things just aren't taught within you know the American school system or any type of school system really. And that definitely, you know, speaking as an Asian American that I see that a lot in the Asian American community where it's like, you know, nobody really talks about any of the Asian American history or about, you know, the Chinese and the railroads or anything like that, or, you know, or exclusion acts like that's uh, nobody really discusses that, you know? Uh, and I, I definitely, you know, can side, I think with Kyrie in that aspect, but then at the same time, like uh, the actions or words that you're, you're talking about um, it's, it's heading down the way of eliciting violence somewhere to, I think with, you know, Trump in January 6th more so, right? And that's where, you know, and he's, I guess to his credit, he's kind of, I don't want to say like completely apologized. I think a lot of people are like, is that all you got, right? Um, you know, uh, I think, you know, Adam Silver was like, yeah, that wasn't good enough. Let's talk about this more. So uh, it was definitely like uh, more of a deflection rather than like an apology. And, you know, that's the one thing about apologies, right? Is like when you ask for an apology and they say like, sorry, whatever, it's like, are you really sorry? Like, are, are you just like saying it just to, you know, kind of get out of this whole thing? So, um, which it definitely feels like it's a little bit more of that. And that's where it's like, you know, you have a platform, let's try to build from it more so rather than, you know, kind of trying to divide people or you don't even try to divide people. Cause like what you are kind of doing is dividing people. Like, I'm reading the YouTube comments. I'm reading the Twitter, you know, comments as well. It's not looking good. Like there's a lot of people that are just like, oh yeah, like stick with it, Kyrie. Like, you know, very much uh, kind of like against the man, very anti-establishment, anything, right? And that's just where I feel like, you know, something something could be a, a, a like if I'm the FBI, I'm like this thing might be a little bit crazy now. Let's keep an eye on this. So. That's where I'm like, Kyrie, I feel like you have the power to, to make some sort of change if you want. And, you know, great that you've been doing things in the community. But like, you know, yeah, like what's the I think I think it was Warren Buffett said something like, along the lines of, you know, it takes a lifetime to build up like a reputation or brand. But it takes like one second to ruin it. Right. And I think we're kind of just witnessing uh, that right now at this point. Um, but, you know, I think Kyrie, he definitely is an eccentric person, but, you know, hopefully things you know, he can turn things more positive. Um, I think with regards to creating more of a relationship and more of, you know, awareness on these, on these issues more so rather than like, Hey, this person did this to us. Like, let's go get them type of thing. So, yeah. 
Yeah. And with your point, I mean, I feel like knowing some of this origin story would be helpful. It'd be great if he posted about a book that tells you more about, you know, being Af be of, of African descent and being Jewish and like, what was that route like? If there are atrocities that happened along the way, why not point them out? But go to a credible source. It's almost like you almost felt like he maybe saw something in his own Twitter feed or something about this documentary and then read the, you know, IMDb, you know, four sentence summary and was like, Ooh, that sounds like something relevant to, you know, what's happening right now in the world. So I'm just going to post this without really doing my due diligence. And I'm going to stand behind it because, you know, it seems like it's relevant to me. I feel like he just needs to like dig into stuff a little bit further. Like maybe he's just not doing his own homework. Like he's not actually watching the doc fully or he's not reading the book fully. He's just reading the cliff notes. And it's like, yeah, man, that's like, it's pretty dangerous once you start, you know, uh, pulling excerpts and kind of posting this and, you know, <laughs> not thinking you're promoting it in the same process. So, uh, yeah. That's more on a personal side for him, but like when we do talk basketball, we get back to the NBA, get back to what is actually happening on a court. Like, I don't see him like being a real factor anymore. If he's on your team, he's not just not a factor, but he's actually something that can like pull your team down, and we're seeing it right now. Yeah, I feel like I feel like he's almost like like Kawhi, and I love Kawhi. I almost feel like it's like Kawhi just. Kawhi just shuts his mouth and like he doesn't. <laughs> I'm hurt, whatever. Like whereas Kyrie's like, you know, oh, you know, Jews and stuff. So that's where I'm a little bit. In a way, they're they're kind of similar in that aspect. All the talent in the world uh, have championship pedigree. You know, have showed up in clutch moments. You know, I think uh, Kawhi is two as opposed to I guess Kyrie's one, right? But uh, yeah, it's it's like you know they have all these other things. They're great players in in and of themselves, but whether it's injury or, you know, that mentality of like, Oh, I'm, I'm interested in some other things at the moment, whether it's cultural issues. Right. Um, that's where it's like, what are you doing here? And you know, this is almost goes to show like, you know, I actually have a lot more appreciation. I feel like for LeBron now in a way, like, you know, uh, you, you see all this drama from all these other athletes, right. It's like, what, what's the worst thing LeBron's doing? Like, you know what starting schools and stuff like that and this is where it's like he's making the difference right like you know be the change you want to see in the world that's literally what lebron's doing there so you know yeah i guess kudos to him and yeah like if Kyrie like wants to maybe bring a more constructive voice to the situation it's like okay yeah take those points that i guess you got from this was it hebrews to uh to like negroes or whatever um uh, movie uh take the points that you i guess agree from there and then obviously modify it, but then, you know, Hey, maybe work with LeBron, make, make your own movie that shows and documents this a little bit more thoroughly uh, without, you know, uh, quoting Adolf Hitler. <laughs> so, you know, stuff like that, I feel like, Hey, this is, you know, an opportunity for more constructive content. I feel like uh, on their side, a little bit more so. And I, I think that that would be much better platform and format rather than, you know, posting, I was it like a trailer for this movie and, and all. So. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on this. Uh we will see where this goes. I mean, it's it's gonna be at least five more games, so we'll have to evaluate like the bare minimum of what happens to him, but I guess we'll see down the road like what's the what's the major impact of, of some of this decision making. Um I guess with that, um Wayne, did you have any sort of closing thoughts for, for today's discussion? I have no idea anymore. You know, I don't know if it's the <laughs> shot of Malord or the Kyrie conversation we just had, but um, I mean, I don't know. I'm hoping that uh, 
the the Bears, uh, you know, they progress on offense and then their defense just like does whatever. And then we get a nice pick and then we advance from there long term. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess just building, I guess, off the Kyrie conversation is just, you know, uh, uh, I think there was like there was a movie. I forget what it's called, but it had to do with like chess a little bit. Right. Where, you know, they they took people from the inner city, I think, of like Detroit uh, and they they put them in in this chess program like it was like an after school type of program and then they sensed that you know a lot of these children right you know in like inner city detroit were part of gangs part of gang violence and were so angry but then they took this chess course and then that just essentially kind of got them to think a little bit more before uh you know pursuing any type of actions like you know oh so-and-so stole my bike therefore i gotta shoot them or oh uh somebody has jordans i gotta shoot them right like, no, at least what this whole chess program did was let's think things through a little bit more. Right. You know, and I feel like, hey, in that kind of situation, like this is where I feel like a lot of people, you know, just need to be a little bit better and think think things through and, you know, be kind to each other a little bit more. So uh, so um, that definitely is that shot of war and that bitter melon, I feel like, taste <laughs> coming out. So but yeah, what are your what, what are your uh, takeaways or thoughts? Yeah, I mean on this whole thing, like, you know, I can't control what other people are going to do with their platforms, obviously millionaires with this kind of attention on them and stuff. Like you just hope that, uh, you know, if they want to keep this conversation going, even if it's going to lead to some sort of, you know, debate discussion, uh, awkwardness, uh, tension, all fine. Just, just do it in a way that's uh, responsible, something in a way that's like credible and just think it'll have a better effect. I mean, if, if he did what, could have been done there by promoting this in a much different fashion by exposing the world to some of these truths, like in a way that was credible, I think more people would listen. And I think that's ultimately what's going to get more people to listen is if you back stuff up with facts and, you know, hopefully these uh, tech platforms can also continue doing their own dis, you know, due diligence on misinformation, disinformation. Uh, we need a world that actually is a, uh, knowledgeable and a world that's actually credible for what they put out there to, to the universe. So um, we'll see where everything goes on that front Um, on a much different front. uh, Irrelevant to everything we were just talking about my final thought or closing thought, Wayne, I saw you had a, uh, a post up about cracker barrel and uh, yeah, dude, I, I I resonate with that, man. That resonates with me. I got to know more about your love uh, for cracker barrel because, you know, generally speaking, I think I've been there a handful of times on these, the long uh, arduous road trips and uh, been a really big fan of the, you know, chicken fried steak, those hot apples in the morning with breakfast and stuff. But uh, yeah, what, what got you into it? And like, let me hear some more. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I took some trips to like Michigan and everything and on the road, it's like, Oh, Oh, there's this cracker barrel there. I right, we got, we got I got to go there. Um, and every time I, that ever happened, um, I just felt really good about life and all that. So there's something towards that. Uh, and, you know, those rocking chairs too out, out front, like, man, those things are lovely. Just sitting out there kind of like out of that porch type of atmosphere um, after like a really good meal. I'm like, I get it. I get it. I get it. So um, one more story on that was like, I went to um, uh, Zion National Park out in Utah, actually. Uh, and there was this area, uh, I think it was kind of like a like mini store slash, I think there was some food in there too. Um, but yeah, they had uh uh those rocking chairs out out there actually um and i was with there with a friend 
and we were just talking like, hey, oh, let's sit on those chairs. And we were thinking we just went after a hike and we just want to chill and sit down. So we did. We went in the rocking chairs, just sat there for a second. And I'm like, I uh, told my friend who had never been a Cracker Barrel. I'm like, hey, this reminds me of Cracker Barrel. And then, you know, we got in a conversation about what Cracker Barrel is and all that. Um, and then uh, I see like these two, like, you know, they got to be like 50, 60 year old, you know, uh, uh, white women. And they're like, wow, this reminds you of Cracker Barrel. And then I look at them and I'm like, yes. And it became that time where I felt like I identified with a 50 or 60 year old white woman from, <laughs> you know, who knows where and everything like that. And I'm like, I get you, sister. I get you. So, um, yeah. And I don't know. For me, it was just the food, the biscuits, that uh, chicken, dumplings, uh, country fried steak, like, uh i think deep down inside you know i was actually named after john wayne <laughs> so i don't know maybe there's a little bit of cowboy in me that's just like oh i love this stuff so yeah i love it man uh your cracker barrel was my perkins uh growing up i don't know if you've had okay looks like you kind of may have had perkins before but uh we used to take road trips up to minnesota um i think we went with my aunt the first time ever i think i was like eight or nine years old but uh had um Eggs Benedict, uh, they came out with those really big cinnamon rolls. They have like a to-go bakery that has like pies and muffins and all stuff. And uh, you said one of those like crane games right before you left. So I'd always get to play the crane game. I think it was like you play till you win or something too, which was really nice. So I always went home with something, but kind of that nostalgia, that warmth or whatever. And uh, I was actually rolling through Ohio on my way to Chicago this past summer and stopped with my wife over at a Perkins just to get something in the morning and uh, man, like time really changes a lot of perceptions and stuff. Cause I walked in and uh, the bakery was looking pretty, pretty ratchety. I mean, there was nothing really left on the, on the racks and no cinnamon rolls or I think we ordered some coffee and uh, they came out in this white styrofoam cup with a, you know, a soda lid on it. And I was like, okay, uh, definitely isn't a to go coffee place either. And uh, got through this coffee about halfway through uh, our road trip journey. And the bottom half was just, like grounds of coffee it was just a bunch of sludge. It was disgusting. And uh man, it just it just really it hurt me. And I was like, hey man, we used to have like a really honest relationship here. And like <laughs> just get my kind of, you know, you're you you're, you're talking on both sides of your head here with these with these meals and the way you run stuff these days. But uh yeah man, uh time can change some stuff, but but in a lot of ways, uh yeah, your cracker barrel is definitely like my my Perkins memory. Yeah, I know. Uh that's that sounds awful. Yeah, it's like one of those things like <laughs> Oh, why did you have to ruin my childhood now? Like as an adult, like, you know, as I've evolved my pal a little bit more, right? It's like, yeah, this stuff doesn't hit the same, I think, you know, whether it be McDonald's or for me, you know, uh Jollibee actually. I feel like that too. Uh, you know, I I, I remember going there as an adult, like 10 years separating between when the last time I had Jollibee and then um to what I have right now, right? And it's like, oh yeah, like this uh spaghetti and hot dogs this is kind of childish. It's like chef Boyardee stuff, but as a kid, it's like, this is amazing. This is the best thing ever. So, um, no, yeah, I get it. It's like, as an adult, sometimes those things you had as a kid or when you're, when you're younger, it's like, yeah, this is, this doesn't fly as well. I feel like, so yeah, man, I'm, I actually want to try Jollibee because, um, I've actually done more research on it than I've actually even had like a bite of it. Cause there's like these Harvard business review cases we used to read in college. I, I read the same case in undergrad and then read the exact same case in grad school. And I was just like, damn it. Like I got to try this stuff. Cause it's like, you know, yeah. just the way they, you know, kind of catered toward local taste with, you know, mm -hmm. fast foods in the Philippines and stuff. And they brought their way over to America. I feel like they were 
most likely in California to kick it mm-hmm. off, but I could never like find one either. So yeah. I heard there's one like in the Chicago burbs now, or maybe more, mm-hmm. but still just haven't had access to it. So I never tried it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think they're coming more. So I think there's one in New York, New Jersey area. Um, there might be one in the DC. I'm not too sure. Maybe Florida. So uh, yeah, just r- around the coast and Chicago, I think from my understanding. Um, but yeah, it's funny as like, uh, I mean, I think there's, and I think I read a say, I don't know if it's true. This, this was like maybe five, six years ago, but I think there was like more Jollibees in China than, uh, than McDonald's or something like that. So like they really, uh, you know, dominate, I guess the Asian, uh, business or from the business standpoint, they really dominated the Asian market even more so than McDonald's. So yeah, they're, they're doing something right. But, um, yeah, definitely. Try the the fried chicken with gravy. I think that's pretty solid. Uh, sure, go for the the spaghetti with uh, hot dogs just for the sake of it. Um, but then you definitely have to uh, go there for uh, the halo halo or that dessert um, at the end there. So I think what, if, what's that? It's like a mixture of like beans and like jelly, um, and then uh, usually some ube ice cream with some like shaved uh, uh, coconut uh so hmm. yeah yeah it's it, it literally means mix mix <laughs> okay so okay it, it's a mixture of a bunch of stuff um uh put together and it's, you know if you like sweet and a little bit of you know uh yeah those beans set type of things then uh yeah definitely go for that try it once and then yeah uh thank me later but yeah i think that combination <laughs> i would recommend uh rather than like their burgers more so it's like yeah it's hard to be like good old-fashioned american burgers i feel like sometimes so yeah yeah. No, I just looked it up. There's one actually 15 minutes away on the on the edge of DC there. So we're trying this. I'm, I'm getting this, whether I eat it on the spot here or just give you a full review next time we shoot or something. But I mean, this is going down, man. If I had to do this, man, I feel like you could do Jollibee. So. For sure. For sure. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's end it there. Uh, man, Malort brought into Ball and Breakfast. This is amazing. Uh, Wayne, uh, we can close it out. I'm Patrick here. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you guys very soon.